The greatest leaders in business look for the emerging stories in their organization and use the data to choose their preferred outcome. What outcome do you want in your business? Listen to the stories of industry veterans, coaches, and consultants so you can choose your preferred business outcome. Hi, everyone, and uh, welcome to a brand new episode of the Business Blind Spots Exposed podcast. For those who haven't joined us before, uh, let me tell you a little bit about what it is. And for those who are joining again, thanks for coming back. Uh, so let me tell you where Business Blind Spots Exposed, I'll call it BBSE because that's a lot shorter. Why the BBSE podcast started. There used to be a time where I used to think that being an effective, a great, a world-class leader was all about this idea that I had to be super smart. And I had to be smarter than anybody else and read more books, self-help, technical manuals, all that kind of stuff. And then one fine day kind of hit me that, wait, hold on a second. I've got a lot of smart people around me. I might be 10% smarter, but not 500% smarter. And if I had 50 really smart friends, there was no possible way just by the math that I could be smarter than all of them. And so the light bulb slowly started to get even brighter. I said, well, hold on a second. What if I started getting those people to be sort of my agents to help me raise my perspective and level of gaze. And oh my gosh, magic started to happen. So this Blind Spots podcast is all about the idea that when I learn from others, when I learn from other leaders and I hear their perspectives, all of a sudden I get to step up to the next level. And I'd invite you to come in and listen to some of the experts that we've had in the past or Dan Norenberg today to see how maybe that perspective can shift to kind of take you to the next level like it's done for me. Dan, how are you doing today? Uh, you know, I, after, that, after that introduction, that's just amazing. That's just an amazing, truthful, authentic story, which I think it sets the stage for me and for you and for all the listeners. So yeah, I'm doing great. Well, I, and I want, I want to come back and tell people a little bit about who you are, but there's a word that I use there perspective. Uh, there's a story I tell my kids. I said, I could be the smartest man in the world, but if I'm starting at the bottom of a valley, no matter how smart they are, the person standing at the top of the mountain knows it's raining before me. It doesn't matter what their education level, it's standing in the right place at the right time is really what matters. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and perspective is also similar to perception. And, and uh, you know, you're working in a lot of, you know, real data, what I call hard fact data. And my, the data that I work with, with leadership teams tends to be, let's say, sometimes we say softer data or emotional data. And I know there's a nice inner, inner uh, connection there. But this word uh, perception, which comes from perspective, uh, has an interesting meaning in Germany because I'm based in Germany. And the word for perception in, um, in German is Wahrnehmung. Now, it might sound a little strange if you don't speak German, but Wahrnehmung is a, is a, is a, a combination of two words. Wa means truth and Nehmen means take. Mm -hmm. So in German, when you say perception, it means the truth I take from a situation. So I loved your metaphor about standing in the valley and up on the mountain. And, and you know, it's different because depending on where you're standing, and, you know, we could be in the same meeting, we could be producing the same strategy, we could be visiting the same client, for example, I'm bringing a business context, but our perceptions could be very different. You know, if I'm a tech, if I'm an electrical engineer looking at the technical solution, 
and I'm looking at maybe the techniques and the and the sales guy is looking at, let's say, the, the revenue possible generation, we're going to have different volume or different perceptions. So it's just, uh, I, so I love that introduction and I'm going to keep in mind the the uh, the valley and the uh, and the mountain rain story. So I want to tell a little bit uh, more uh, to to listeners as to who you are. So author of a book called Executive Ownership, uh, creating highly effective leadership teams, and you're spending time highlighting what most go right and what can go wrong in leadership teams that strive their best. So I want to kind of dig into that for a little bit, right? Yeah. And based on what you were just talking about, right, the truth in, in, in sight, the truth in perspective, right, is the biggest challenge that you see with leadership teams, just from your experience in working with these teams, is it usually that it's, it's a matter of intelligence and capability? Is it more just about being able to kind of just turn to the side a little bit and look at things a little differently and be able to, I'll use the word, receive it, what's actually happening in a different way? Does that, does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean that, that that's a really good question, and um, let me let me frame it in this way. I mean, I've worked to date with about 150 executive and strategic leadership teams on three continents, and um, and 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 what I've observed in those in those interactions with teams, and it's probably similar to yours. Um, than I is that is that at the very top of the organization, whether it's a small organization or a very large organization, uh, the people are there's a lot of intellectual firepower, um, high degrees of motivation, very ambitious, and they know their particular business area, you know, better than a Harvard professor. But my observations were when I first entered the C-suite as a coach, advisor, and consultant was that as an organizational unit you know, they just didn't play well together as a team. And so, and this was sort of like a, a sort of a collective blind spot for them. And, and I thought about this a little bit before our call. And I thought, you know, why is it that there are blind spots, you know, in the senior leadership teams of the organizations? And I think it's, first of all, they have a lot on their dashboard. So when you come into the C-suite, or even if you're running a small business and you're like the owner and you're running a small team, you've got issues coming at you all the time. And so when you're under constant, you know, uh, overload, it's hard to recognize or even notice those blind spots. And I think second of all, there's not a lot of time, or maybe you feel at the very top that there's no need to learn or to stay open anymore because you're the top dog, if I use sort of a masculine metaphor. And the last one is that, uh, and this is the other one, and it's how I opened my book. It's about uh, what I've also recognized is probably the biggest buying spot, buying spot in the senior level is that they're not comfortable exposing their struggle or their shortcomings to their colleagues. There's a lot of power there. So anyway, long answer to your question, but that's a viewpoint to start with. No, I, I appreciate that. So I made an analogy just the other day on a podcast that I was actually on about this idea of constantly up-leveling yourself. And the, the analogy I use, I, and you know, in your part of the world, they call it football, right here, we call it soccer, right? Yes, yes. Uh, but in either case, I've, I've played a lot of proper football in, in, in my life. Uh, what I learned as a 12-year-old, and, and I, I talk about this idea of perfection being a journey, not an end point, right? Mm -hmm. What perfection meant for me as a 12-year-old was in order to make that team that I wanted to get to, that uh, traveling team, regional team, I had to be able to, one of the skill assessments was I had to be able to juggle the ball in my knee so it doesn't touch the ground 50 times, right? 
And I got to mastery of that. So I made the team fantastic. But that level of mastery, that level of understanding of requirements, that level of perfection uh, changed for a 13-year-old team, right? Now mm-hmm. it was 75 or something else. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, I think I'm, what I'm trying to do is make the analog between what you're saying here is that, yeah, you may have gotten to this position where you're in leadership of an organization, one, two, three, five, 50,000 people, but there's always that graduation from 12 to 13-year-old perfection. So where you are right now is great and you're more welcome to stay there, but there's always more. And I think that's a little bit of an undertone of what I heard in what you were saying, that there's another level of effectiveness that's maybe just beyond reach for today, but that's part of what you helped them find. Am I, am I getting that right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a, a couple analogies there. I mean, what, what happens is these, as, as men and women grow up to the organization, we almost always start as an individual contributor, right? We, we start out making a contribution either to a product or to a service or to a, to a customer or maybe a process or something. And then we become a team lead. And then we start to manage a manager managing team leads. And we sort of grow up. And, and what we see is we sort of evolve in that, let's say, organizational hierarchy we're usually promoted to a large degree because we've managed tasks and been successful. And so when we get to the top of the organization, we continue to do what we've always done, um, which means we always get what we always got, right? If I could use some language there, but that may not be what's needed at that senior level. If I need to be more strategic or more collaborative or um, more, more contrarian to you know, catch challenges in the marketplace. And I think we get frozen sometimes in the past. Yeah. I mean, and so let me, let me, if I continue that analogy there with 12 and a 13 year old Vinay, right. Uh, as I got older, uh, in the 12 year old league, there is the level of team play expected is less, more individual talents is more hmm. the bias. But as you become a, uh, as I started playing as an 18 year old, as a 22 year old, the bias towards individual contributorship is less, more mm-hmm. about team play and understanding, hey, Vinay, you're a right fullback. You've got fantastic speed and endurance. Uh, that's how we're going to use you. But how does that integrate with the rest of the team is the bigger picture that we need to understand. That's not what was accessible as a 12-year-old because that's kind of where I started. But as a 22-year-old, it's that it's not that that's less important. That's just the set of lessons and tools that I use in terms of my everyday existence has changed. And did I get that right? Yeah, great, great metaphor. And we also see that in senior leadership teams, but slightly differently. So I would say in a larger organization of say a thousand people and above, um, it's not, it, so it's, it, it, it's in fact true, but it's not the individual contributor piece then, it's the piece between um, I'm the master of my function. So maybe I'm running supply chain or IT or sales or marketing or R&D or manufacturing, and I've got my own legion of people. And that's where my, that's, that's how I'm rewarded. Um, that's where, that's the language that I speak. And I also have a foot in the uh, leadership team. And so the, the most, one of the common questions that, that happens to me when I come into an organization and a, a CEO or senior leader MD will ask me to work with him or her and their team. And I'll meet with members of the team. The team leader will say that one of the team members will just say, Dan, just tell, just tell the leader, I just want to do my job. And I'll say, well, what is your job? It's like, I just want to run my function and say, well, I know Harold, but you also have a foot in the executive team. What are your responsibilities there? And then, and then everything starts. So I think that's, 
a, a, a similar analogy to what you shared about the individual contributor team player. And at the very senior level of an organization, it's like, you know, I'm responsible for running this very important function. Without this function, we won't survive, which is true. However, I also have a foot in the leadership team, which means I need to have other interests, which means in a highly evolved team, what it could mean is that at times I may have to make a decision from time to time, which might not be appropriate for my or good for my function, but it's good for the overall organization. I've seen several production uh, leaders have to make those kind of decisions about offshoring and going to India or Asia, things like that with manufacturing. And we know how employment and sensitivity uh, people are about that in Europe and also in the United States. So, for example. Yeah. And for those who might be listening into this, uh, I would love to hear in the comments, uh, is there particular things that Dan is saying that resonate with you that you've heard before that uh, kind of are sort of take home messages for you? I'd love to hear it in the comments. Just, uh, you know, I'd love to see what, what you're getting out of this. So appreciate you listening in. Share, share with what, us what you're, uh, what you're hearing and what resonates with you. Um, there's three things here that, you know, leadership practices based on three principles that you bring to the table. And I'm reading these because I want to get them the words right. Leadership is a team endeavor. I think we've actually started to talk about that, right? Mm -hmm. Leadership development is a top-down process. I think leadership development is, is a top-down process, not bottom-up. I think maybe we should start to pull on that thread a little bit. And this last one is that leadership teams can transform their business and should not be robbed of the opportunity to create their own breakthroughs. Let's talk about number two, right? Leadership is a top-down process and not bottom-up. Tell me what that means. Well, if we look for a moment, if we just took a snapshot of the top 100,000 organizations in the world that all have, let's say, fairly evolved human development, people development processes, and even leadership development programs, what we'll find in probably 90 to 95% of the time, we'll find a very heavy emphasis on providing support and development for leaders, first-time leader programs, uh, leading projects, leading international groups, uh, maybe how to be a team leader or something like that. Most of the resources internally in an organization are based on the, let's say, entry-level, mid-level leaders surprisingly enough. Now, when we move up to the top of the organization, if we look at the amount of resources that are used to develop the top levels of the organization, we do see leadership excursions, people going to business schools or things of that nature. But the amount of resources is highly skewed towards the lower end. And, and it's for me, it's one of those, what I call the, a global blind spot in the area of leadership development. And you've and you just named them. So one is it's is that the first blind spot, and it's tied to the second part that we we're just talking about. The first blind spot is that for so long, for hundreds of years, we've believed that leadership is about the heroic soloist. You know, our American history, the sports figures, the political figures, the military figures, not just in America, but in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, everywhere. It's been built on this heroic soloist, and there's nothing wrong with that. We need we need strong individual leaders. But I think if we've seen anything in the last five, 10, 15 years, the complexity of the issues, the diversity of the populations that we're talking about, it's too much to expect one man or woman to be this overriding um, sort of 
lord of all ideas, if you will. So we still need a strong CEO or managing director in that situation. But the, the transformational businesses that we see going forward are going to be about teams. So for me, leadership is a team endeavor. Um, and that's the first blind spot that we've overlooked. And then it's closely tied with it's a top down it's a top-down issue, not a bottom-up. So I, if we look, for example, statistically, only one out of 20 senior leadership teams have a, have a program for systematic development in their, organization, in, their, in their leadership team. So in my view, if you don't have a process for systematic development in your senior leadership team, how can you possibly drive systematic improvement across the entire organization? It, it, so I think I have some work to do. So I want to, I always love to, I love stories, even uh, as a kid and uh, still as a, go for it, adult, still, still love great stories. Um, you, you told me about uh, nine days where you decided to take a trip through Europe. And then it ended up being uh, the nine days that convinced you that you needed to stay in New Europe. Give me a little bit of an understanding of how that realization came about from a personal point of view, and how you've started to apply that in what you do in these teams. I mean, there was a realization that occurred. That's not, there's no billboard that said, hey, Dan, stay here, right? Mm-hmm. It was a felt sense of something. And you said, all right, this is something that I want to do. And I want to be intentional in trying to create that. I think 30 years later, you're still still there because of that decision that yeah. you know, over that nine-day period. Yeah. Are there some analogs between what happens in leadership teams and that kind of that nine day sort of revelation? Well, yes. And uh, that's, I've never had quite had that, that, that rainbow drawn before. I'm not sure I can do that into short. Sure. So that's okay. me, I'll, I'll, at least, I'll at least give you the first piece. Then we'll see if we can come back. To, but the second sure. one, but the thing about Europe is early in my life and it went back to my in college with my football career and to make it real short, I stepped out and decided I wasn't going to play anymore because I wasn't playing like I thought I should. You know, my expectations weren't being met. Maybe uh, being a good player at a certain level, being a really good player at a high school level, going to college level and realizing that, oh, my God, there's some really good players here and not really willing to wait my turn. And so I quit. A week later, the guy got hurt. I would have been playing, but I wasn't because so it was just a regret. And let me say it was a regret that I lived with for about 10 years. And 10 years later, I was in Europe and I was on a nine day holiday sitting in Paris, thinking about heading back home to California. I didn't have a job at the time. I wasn't married. I'd sold my house. So I I went to Europe to kind of refresh myself. On the way back, thinking about going back to the US, I had a dream that night in Paris and I dreamt that I was 80 years old. And I was looking back at my life. I saw myself back in California, pushing the lawnmower with two kids and two cars, which I thought would be a good life. But at 80, I was looking back, maybe like you described the man on the mountain looking down the valley. I looked back at that time that I was in Europe and I was in my early 30s. And I thought, you know, will you regret not spending more time in Europe when you really didn't have any obligations? What could that mean for you personally and for your career? And then I, it was such a a dramatic dream. I woke up in that dream. I woke up at four o'clock in the morning. It was so disturbing. And it reminded me I had that taste of regret in my mouth uh, that I'd had when I quit the football team. And it was so profound that I didn't, I had decided that I didn't want to live a life of regret. So I'm not sure I can tie that to the leadership team right now, but to make a long story short, the next morning I was supposed to go to the airport, De Gaulle, and fly back to LAX 
and start my new big thing, which I didn't know yet what it was. Instead, I got on a train and I came back to Munich. I didn't speak a word of German. I didn't know one person and I didn't have working papers. So what I can say is maybe here's the analogy. So thank you for helping with that. I came to Germany and I built a seven figure consulting practice over many years. And now I work independently. I'm just on my own again, but work with really top companies. But I, and I did that because I worked really hard and I never gave up. However, a lot of people helped me. Um, customers, friends, I never could have been, I've got a wonderful wife. I've got a wonderful wife. She's helped me make me who I am. So my success is a result of others. And the link that you've helped me now make for the first time is that, is that uh, a leadership team or an individual member cannot be successful um, without the collaborative efforts of the others. And so often they're competing with each other instead of collaborating with, it, with each other. So uh, thank you. You've given me a, an insight. Well, so it, what actually there was a, a purpose to that. And uh, I was hoping we could make this connection because this is what kind of popped into my head. And it's, it's this last th- and the third point about the uh, leadership team should not be robbed of the opportunity to create their own breakthroughs, right? And I, I think what I heard there in sort of the story you're telling me is this nine days, you had this revelation. There was no proof that said, this is what you should do. But this is something that I think is right. It was a gut feel. And over the series, uh, uh, series, over a time and a series of conversations, you were able to turn that into something that it sounds like you just truly passionate, love. You're in a great place, and it all just started with this. I, I don't know if I want to go back, and it was just this felt sense. Uh, but building that team around you of people who could kind of support you to get there is what's gotten you to the place where you're of a success in your own right. Does yeah, that and- make sense? Well, thank you. That's that's very, very insightful. And I think it's a lot about, the book title is Executive Ownership, which is a lot about developing ownership, the deepest level of engagement in an organization. And I would say that in part, my success was due to, um, I took ownership to have a life without regret. And, mm-hmm. and I think what, that third point that you shared about, we shouldn't rob leaders of the, of the opportunity to create their own breakthroughs. In many of the organizations that I work with, um, very, very large organizations, and this is, I don't mean to take a a swing at classic consulting companies, but often they'll bring in very large consulting groups to provide turnkey solutions. And and when they leave, um, often things don't run as they should have run. And a guy like me will come in and just, I'm just alone. I'm just one guy. And they'll say, well, we had 60 consultants here before. You know, we had senior partners, we had managing directors, we had junior partners. And I said, look, if you, I'm here because I believe that, you know, you can make your own transformations. If you created the situation, if you got yourself into this mess, you can get yourself out of this mess. And I'm going to help enable you to make those changes. So, so I think what I do is my work is about ownership and some of the classic, there's a difference between ownership and authorship. You know, you can you can sign off on a thing and like, yeah, the strategy is okay. And yeah, let's sign off on that change thing. But to own it, you know, I really, I really owned my journey in Europe. And it certainly wasn't pretty the first five years. It sounds like a great story now. And I feel it is a great story. And I, and I wouldn't, I, I love the States, but I wouldn't want to be anywhere differently. But, you know, there's a price to pay. And I was willing to pay that price. 
So uh, let me kind of play back in a couple of words, some thoughts that are going through my head based on what I'm hearing from you, especially around this idea of executive ownership, right? Uh, I actually was just talking to some of the people on my team just a little earlier today, and I talked to them about this journey, this maturity journey that everyone goes through many, many times, potentially in a day, definitely thousands of times in their lifetime. And this maturity journey starts with this awareness of something first. You got to see it and you understand it first. Once you're aware of it, then you can start to engage with it and you start to play with it a little bit and say, is this right for me? Is this, is this just kind of a one-off sort of thing? And the last piece is that ownership, right? Where you take control and exert the influence that you want. Mm. And I think what I heard from you here is that when a, a lot of other companies, a lot of other companies, management consultants, so on and so forth, they come and say, here's the process of how you're doing. They're saying, hey, take ownership of, ownership of this. I think what you're saying is, you can't just jump right to the end. You yeah. got to start to realize where you are first and go through that maturity journey yourself. And because once you do it, I heard this other fantastic uh, thing on a podcast. Um, someone said that pain is the greatest gift ever given to mankind. Mm. And it's because it allows you to see, do I want to opt in or not? Right. Mm -hmm. Do I want to mm. push through? And for organizations to, find those opportunities to be able to live by those three principles that you're talking about. It's an option for them to lean into and to start to create that community in the organization so they can lean into that opportunity. And you coach them along that process of maturity. Did I, am I, am I starting to say that? Right. right? That's really, that's really insightful. That's really insightful. I, I hadn't quite, I hadn't quite framed it like that. I like that very much. I like that very much. That gives me an insight. I describe it this way in organizational terms because what I hear, and I, I heard I heard a part of you said part of this. What I hear when I go into an organization is I'll, somebody will you know pound their fists on the desk and say you know we you know we've got to delegate more ownership in our organization. We've got to get more ownership in our organization. And I remind people that you know you can't you can't you can't delegate ownership. And I'll just give you a short story that may, might you might you tell this story. So it might even be familiar with this. It might even be a story that you're familiar with. But it's about a guy that goes into a hotel, and the hotel clerk checks him in. He checks him in, and the guy, the guest, sees a small dog over in the side of the lobby, just a small, cute little dog. And the guy, the guest, walks over there, and he turns to the clerk and he says, "Does your dog bite?" And the clerk says no, and the guy reaches down to pet the dog, and the little dog just about takes the guest's hand off, just absolutely ferocious. And the guest jumps up and looks at him, he said, I thought you said your dog doesn't bite. And the clerk says, it's not my dog. Now, we've maybe seen that story in, a, in another context, but it kind of demonstrates what you're talking about. Because the clerk was responsible. That's the first level of engagement, right? Responsibility is about understanding the role. He checked the guest in right? Uh, responsibility is something that's important because we clarify roles and responsibilities. That's an organizational language. We could probably even assume that the clerk was accountable. He's probably accountable for the petty cash. The difference between accountability and responsibility is that responsibility can be jointly owned. Safety in a plant. We all can be um, responsible for safety, but only one person is accountable for the petty cash in a business because if you lose money, you can't blame two people. You've only got to blame one. And now responsibility and accountability can both be delegated, but you use the word, and it was cool because you were talking about this material line and you, you, you words like, like opted in. 
uh, ownership is the highest degree of engagement. I think we spend far too much time talking about engagement, fully engaged people, nothing against our friends at Gallup, it's, it's good work, but, but three-dimensional engagement is ownership and ownership cannot be delegated. It is a, it is people opt in. They, I like, I've, I've never used that before. They opt into ownership. So what this means for leaders, you've got to create an environment that people say, my goodness, I can be my full self. I can be who I am. I can experiment and fail here. People appreciate who I am. They want to see me succeed. I have a lot of choices to turn the levers in my particular function and I'm all in, you know, and then be careful because companies that have high degrees of ownership are just, they're basically unstoppable, you know? So anyway, that's the story and the analogy that I would use. So I, I really look at it on the continuum of responsibility, accountability, and ownership. And I like that. I mean, I, I keep, when I, my, my poor kids, they're, they're, they're younger. The oldest is uh, about to turn, turn 13. Okay. And they, they, they're hearing all this stuff. And I, and I hope, <laughs> my hope is that as they get this discernment between these words, right, and these concepts, by the time they get uh, to an older age, they start to move into the workforce themselves, they will, uh, they will start to have a much more level, much higher level of comfort with these words in terms of how they're used in these concepts, right? And one of the things I talked to them about this idea of ownership is this idea of exerting influence. It's not control because hmm. I'll be the first to tell you, I can't control all in the world. I can exert influence on the world. Uh, and hopefully my influence is influential, <laughs> right? Impactful. Uh, and I think that's kind of what I'm hearing from you as you come into organizations, you help the organ that in that executive owner shift, it's this idea that they can start to see how they can influence those that are around them, the partners, the stakeholders, the employees. And if, as they start to understand that, how they can impart that influence, that's when that ownership starts to occur. Did I get that right? Yeah, ab absolutely. And I have to use that same sort of process you know, when I go in, because obviously at the senior level of organizations, these people have done everything, seen everything, you know, been to Harvard, been to London School of Business. They've got their PhD, all these, all the successful business people. And then they see a guy, you know, from Iowa, who, you know, who lived in California with psychology and criminology degrees living in Europe. And I'm going to, you know, coach them. So, you know, how do I influence them to be open to ideas, their blind spots and things like that. And, you know, there's only three, there's only three ways to influence people, right? You can use, you coerce them, you know, coercion is like to, to corner people, push them back. You can use normative pressure. I could say, well, you know, all the other companies in the area are, are working with me. And if you don't, you're going to fall behind, you know, Johnny and Susie are doing it. So uh, you should be doing it too, Tommy. You know, that's the normative pressure. That's another way of influencing. And the third is to, is to appeal to their highest, uh, to their highest interest. So I go in and I don't talk about, you know, fixing them. And I, I even use the terminology owner shift. Shift is a small change. So my question to you, leadership team, is what are the small changes that would lead to big breakthroughs in your organization that you've been thinking about, talking about for a long time, but never been able to manifest because you need that maybe coach or advisor on the outside just to hold you a bit accountable. You don't see any team in any sport, in any nation that's playing at the best level of the world that doesn't have a series of coaches on the sideline helping the Ronaldos, you know, helping all the guys really play at their best.
And so yeah, heard- that kind of argument, that sort of opens things up. Yeah. So I heard a fantastic stat the other day that the average Olympic athlete has nine coaches, right? If you want to be world-class, nine coaches is, is the message there, right? Uh, so for all those who, well, let, let, let me stop talking about it else. Let me talk about myself first, right? In order for me to get to world-class, I need to have nine coaches. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what I hear there. And I think that's kind of what I'm hearing from you as well, right? The ability to say, I'm going to have not just a growth mindset, I'm going to keep growing by myself, but rather this expansive mindset that actually includes more and more people who can influence my ability to influence others, right? I become a proxy for those ideas, those high level, higher level perspectives. That person is telling me it's raining uh, from the top of the mountain, he sees it's coming over the, he or she sees it coming over that next mountain range. Ah, that's going to change my plans because they've helped me shift and influence what's going to happen down in that valley. Well, that's that's a great insight, and that's 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 one of the big breakthroughs with leadership as a team concept. So my projects will normally run three, nine, twelve months with the leadership team. Sometimes it'll go on in a, in a maintenance level for four or five years, but usually after five years, I'm out of there. But my 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 communication, my message is this. I'm here to support this team. I'm only there to support the team. So any feedback or observations that I give, I don't, I'm not uh, no better than them. I'm not the professor. I'm not the overall, I'm just sharing feedback and ideas to help them improve. And I'm here for a while, but the reality is for anybody working in a team, there is no resource that can help a, a leadership member become better than the people around him or her. So I would say, and building on what you just said, which I thought was very insightful, is that every leadership team, if I'm a member of a leadership team and there are nine members, I've got eight potential coaches. But the reality today is, the reality today is only one in five uh, executives think they're part of a high performance leadership team. And 70% of executives say the leadership team they're a part of doesn't add any value to what they do. 60% of executives say that trust is an issue in their team, meaning that in most leadership teams, they don't even know what their colleagues are struggling with on a personal or professional level. This is a tragedy. This is a blind spot, you know, coming back to what we're talking about. So my work is about helping reduce those um, those 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 silos and those boundaries because um, I even opened the book with a story about vulnerability and how I've learned how and observing teams that move from struggling to good and good to great. One of the fundamental principles is not just about having a clear strategy. It's about to what degree are people vulnerable in this team? To what degree can they share where they're struggling? Because when I know where I know someone's struggling, we can help them. And additionally, if I'm a senior leadership team member and I don't share where I'm struggling and I have an organization of 400 people, they're going to do what I do. They're not going to share their struggles. So as a result, we're always working late. We're always finding out about problems late. Vulnerability leads to authenticity, which is one of the components of trust. So um, it's often overlooked and not really recognized as the game changer that it is uh, for leadership team uh, performance. Yeah, I want to kind of dig into that one piece there that you said about sort of that blind spot that a lot of teams don't realize or don't believe that they're working with a high performance team. I mean, I'll go back to the soccer analogy or the football analogy, not proper football, as I call it. Uh, the analogy here is 
if I think I'm a star player and I'm that right fullback, I'm standing in the back there, I'm fantastic at defense. I've got lots of endurance. I'm bigger, faster, stronger than the average uh, forward who's going to be a striker. That's great. Now, if I try to carry that team of 11 by myself, well, guess what? I'm going to have the results of one person who might operate at 125% at best, right? But there are no other better people for me to enlist or enroll into winning as a team as opposed to those other 10 people who are already around me. They already have this similar cause. They want to win the game. We're already part of the same team. Why would I look somewhere else? I think that's kind of what I'm saying. I mean, what I'm hearing you say is they're right there in front of you. Why try to recruit someone from the sideline when you've got 10 players standing on the field who actually want to do yeah. the same thing as you? Am I, am I hearing that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and so often, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a really great analogy. And, and so often in leadership teams, they, let's say they have a, maybe an opinion or concern about one of their team members or something's not quite working, but they just don't, um, they don't express that. And, um, and that becomes a, a type of dysfunction. And, you know, I was thinking, um, I had a, uh, a cup of coffee before uh, we came on today. And I was just thinking about this whole, this whole, I, I, I really appreciate your, the, this blind spot title. It really opened up a lot of doors for me, even before the call. And, and I was thinking that this, this blind spot thing, particularly in my work as it relates to leadership teams, it's multidimensional. Um, and so we often think that blind spot is just not seeing something. And that for me is, is, is first degree blind spot. We just, we just don't see the blind spot, you know? This, the second is, and this is true in my work with leadership teams, they know there's something that's not working in the team, but they don't realize how much impact or how much distress it creates in the organization. Confusion, blockages, whatever. So the second degree blind spot for me is about, yeah, we, we, we know something's missing uh, or we see something's not working right, but we fail to what I call the, we'd fail to follow the field of consequences. You know, there's a, there's a field of consequences from the very top. They fall a long way, you know, and, and the third degree of uh, blind spot for me, uh, just, just sort of uh, ad living here about your work is it's like, we, we see the blind spot or we see the dysfunction blind spot. We understand the implication, but we, we, we don't have the courage or the skill to address it. And so I'm going to certainly be, I just I came to about, about an hour ago and I'm going to work with that a little bit about the, the different, uh, the different degrees of, of blind spots and what they might mean. Yeah. And I, and I know we keep hopping, hopping in analogies here, but I, I, I love them. And, you know, I have a, an executive coach and one of the things she's, she said that she, from the beginning, which I didn't really tr- understand the profound value of what this is, is she said, all I am is a mirror. Now, a mirror does two things. And in, in a physical sense, and, you know, in my house, we've got this mirror that, you know, as soon as you walk out the door, you look in the mirror. Mirror actually does two things, not one thing. One is it allows me to see myself, right? Kind of how am I appearing? Is my hair combed? Is, you know, do I have that broccoli still stuck in my teeth or whatever, right? But number two is, have you ever had that experience where you looked in a mirror and you see something that was up on the wall that you would have never looked at before? Other people on your team are a mirror that you get a chance to see who you are, but that little piece on the wall that had fallen off that, that the molding up in the crown molding that you would never look up because that's up in the ceiling yeah. that you would have never seen. That's a blind spot for you. And while you're actually not shifting perspective, they get to show you from their perspective, Hey, there's something that you hadn't seen before. Right. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think that's a, so this idea that you were talking about these levels of blind spot or the types, the, the awareness of these blind spots is 
fantastic because people are a fantastic mirror for you that can show you from your perspective something you may not have been able to see or would have never noticed before. Yeah, it's it, it's a very good point, and 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 the mirror is is one thing. It's a still two dimensional thing. Having that coach that you have is, I would say, is even more than a mirror. It's almost like a it's a it's a it's a it's a different it's a different filter because yeah. she is filtering that through her own thing. And in German, we say selbstbild, uh, uh, the view how I see myself, and then there's what we call fremdbild or foreign the foreign view how others see us. These two things are really, really important because um, no book, no course, um, nothing can help us understand how others see us except for others. And of course, in the context of a leadership team, that's really, really powerful because the leadership team interaction or whoever, it doesn't have to be a leadership team, it just could be anybody, but it, it helps me answer the question, which is vital for every leader. How do other people experience me? Yeah. Now, now it, it doesn't mean that I have to change and be soft and, and, and mold to everybody. You know, you have to be who you are. But as a leader, I need to understand how do other people experience my message? And at the end of the day, I have a certain outcome that I want to achieve. I want to create more customers. I want to have more uh, seamless data retrieval. I want to have a, um, a, a higher level of engagement in the organization. We want to have a more robust strategy. Those are business outcomes, but they come as a result of how people experience uh, leadership and to the degree they think they can uh, play at their best then. Yeah, I like uh, I like where this conversation is going. Um, this idea of introspection. Uh, well, I I I know for myself, uh, if you had asked Doctor the uh, Vinay twenty years ago, you would have gotten a different answer here. And someone telling me what my I don't like the, using the word effect, uh, good or bad. I like using the word effective and ineffective. If you'd started to point out the areas that were I was ineffective, I took offense at that. Mm-hmm. When in fact today it's more of huh. I didn't see that. Mm. Uh, now I've got a choice that I can make. And that's, I think that's ultimately, I think what I'm hearing from you is that there's a choice that you have when someone shows you that doesn't mean you have to say, Oh gosh, no, I'm so terrible. It's more of, okay, I know about that. What am I going to do with it now? Right. Do yeah. I actually want to spend the time to fix that and get, because where you pay attention is where you get results yeah. or do I want to say, yeah, I don't want to do that. Jack, you know, Sally, it's yours. <laughs> yeah. I don't want to touch that ever again. That's actually leading from a more potent and powerful place. Once you start to say, "I'm just going to push that off," that's not my domain. Is that is that is that about right? Yeah, and then there's 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 the other there's the other uh, factor of 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 power there that we did that you, that you didn't discuss on that. I mean, that's exactly what you said. But but the the the, the release of power, the, the fusion right there, the, the power creation is for when when you respond in a way that, gosh, thanks for that feedback. I didn't really know it was that much of an issue. I didn't know it really impacted you that way. Let me think about that and see what I want to do. How's that other person feeling? Highly respected, highly valued. You listened to me. You heard what I had to say. You're going to go think about it. What I had, what my contribution was valuable. Suddenly you've made me larger. Yeah. A leader's role is to help people feel larger, you know, and and that's really, really important. So when we listen to feedback, we don't have to do everything. And we can say, you know, I listen to that. 
I'm just not going to change that. I'm going to stick with that decision or whatever it is. But this ability to listen is is really, really powerful. And that's the and that's a it's just a power creator. You know, we, we create power and 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 unity. So I, that's a that's a good, good uh, story you shared there. So I want to kind of bring all these things back together because we've, I think there's a couple of different things in terms of blind spots. We've made analogies about uh, proper football or soccer and, and, uh, uh, and also about traveling to, to Europe as well as mirrors. And I want yeah. to kind of try to bring the synthesis of all of that stuff together. And I think what I'm hearing from all this is that there are a shift in perspective that happens as an executive. In order to be able to make that shift, you need to be uh, willing and receptive to what that mirror can show you, not only about yourself, but things that you can't see. But what it is that you do is you build that environment and that ecosystem for that to occur. Because if you truly want to lean into this sort of uh, um, shift, right? if you really want to go through this shift, well, you're probably going to fall back to the old methods because guess what? That's what you've always done. If you want to be able, someone needs to be able to step out, Dan, that's what you do is you come in and say, hey, let me step out of the situation. I'm not emotionally charged here. I'm not an emotional in the situation. Let me kind of tell you what I'm seeing is happening here. Is that what you intended? And if they truly want to go to for that after that North Star, you give them the space to be able to build that in the organization so they can truly, not just as an individual, but maybe as a team, as an organization, experience that shift in perspective. Did I say that right? Yeah, very, very well done. I can can give you the book and you can write another chapter in there. I mean, that's really, (laughs) and that, and and that, and that, and that's a, you know, I purposely chose the word shift to just signify a a small degree of change. And, you know, a 1% degree over 70 days, you've doubled your effectiveness. And what we're really talking about, and we, you use the example of a leadership team, but it can just be any of us. Mm-hmm. I mean, the book is written about my experiences in leadership teams, but I think if you're just interested in personal development, you'll still take a lot away from the book because this shift is really simply defined. There's a there's a big there's a distance between knowing something and doing something, and you know my population unit of analysis is our senior leadership teams. There's a lot of intellectual firepower there, but for all of us, sometimes we know what we want to do, but we're not yet converting into action. And that distance between knowing something and doing something, that distance is called discipline. And 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 in order to, to in order to collapse that gap between knowing and doing, it's about starting something and keeping. You know, I'm just talking on a personal level now to keep that going for at least a 21 day period. Uh, you know, to continue it, for to start and to continue it. So we start getting data. What, what's the data coming back about my, my shift? What's the data coming back? Yeah. Is it, and I need to do it for maybe 21 days so I can see that. If I want to get larger arms from lifting weights, I'm, you know, the old football thing, but I'm not like I was, but I still can't go to the gym twice and expect to see any results. I need 21 days and I can do some things or in tennis, or in swimming. So we need to start something, we need to continue something. And then as you mentioned, and this is where teams or friends or Pearson come in is, is to say, hey, Susan, 
Uh, I've got some feedback that I'm interrupting people in meetings, and I really want to work on that. You're also in that meeting with me once a week. I'm going to ask in about three or four weeks how I'm doing. If you see me that I'm really not interrupting as much. So I've, cho I've chosen a, an accountability partner there, you know, an accountability partner to help me hold me accountable. And I'm going to go back to her in about three weeks and say, how did I do? So those are ways that whether we're running a home business on our own, whether we're running a, a carpentry shop somewhere, you know, outside in the in the Smoky Mountains, or we're running a large organization, we've got to recognize that for all of us, you know, what do I know? What do I want to be doing? How do I close that distance with discipline by starting, continuing? And what kind of accountability partner can I find or system to check in that I'm doing the things that I say I want to do? Simply put. I, uh, I hope all those that got a chance to listen to this, that you uh, got an opportunity to shift how you think about this. Uh, and if you are interested in this type of journey, which I highly recommend for everyone, I've gone through that journey. It was a, a bumpy, rocky journey to get there myself. But uh, the profound value of what Dan is talking about here is, is profound as an understatement for how powerful and impactful it is. I encourage you to follow Dan. Uh, check out more of what Dan does. Check out his book, Executive Ownership. I think you'll get a lot out of it. Uh, but thank you for listening in. Uh, hopefully this was something that was really worth your time. But more importantly, uh, Dan, thank you. Thank you for your time. Good night. Thank you. It's been, it's been an absolute pleasure. You've opened up my eyes. and I took a lot of learning away from this session as well. So thank you very much. Good. I'm, uh, I, I always like to keep amplifying the, uh, the noise on the good, on the good conversations. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you.